Hey everyone, Eric here. We're really excited about a new AI show from Turpentine called Autopilot, hosted by Will Summerlin. This podcast explores the adoption and rollout of AI in the industries that drive the economy and the dynamic tech founders bringing rapid scalable change to slow moving industries. From law to hardware to aviation, Will interviews founders backed by Benchmark, Greylock, YC, and more to learn how they're automating at the frontiers in entrenched industries. Click on the link in the description to subscribe to Autopilot. Welcome to Turpentine VC, a podcast where we discuss the art and science of building successful venture firms, investor to investor. I'm your host, Eric Tornberg, an entrepreneur, investor, and co-founder of Village Global, OnDeck, and Turpentine. Why another VC podcast? Of course, there's already a lot of coverage of who the top VCs are and how much money they're betting on different companies and industries. But I realized there's very little on how VCs actually build their businesses and their firms, including fund strategy, how they manage the nuts and bolts of governance structures, how they think about generational transition, things that I talk about with investor friends behind closed doors. So what does it take to build an exceptional venture firm? And will the great VC firms of tomorrow look very different from the great ones today? If you're interested in these questions and want to get an inside look at how the VC world works, then this show is for you. On this show, I talk with founders and managing partners of top firms like Sequoia, A16Z, Benchmark, Founders Fund, Kleiner, Thrive, GC, and more. But for our very first episode, I'm thrilled to share my conversation with one of the most influential and powerful investors of the last decade, Ben Horowitz, co-founder of A16Z. Of course, Ben needs no introduction, but as a refresher, Ben was a product manager at Netscape, where he met Mark Andreessen. Later, they co-founded Opsware, which was acquired by Hewlett Packard, and then they co-founded the venture firm Andreessen Horowitz in 2009. Since then, the firm has grown to hundreds of employees, many billions of dollars under management, offices around the world, and has often rewritten the playbook of how a venture capital firm is supposed to look and act. Fun fact, we recorded this interview at their original office in Menlo Park. While A16Z gets plenty of coverage in tech media, it's rare for Ben to share directly how he thinks about the business of building A16Z and where the firm and future are going. We discuss why Ben considers Paul Graham's Y Combinator's A16Z's closest analog spiritually, why they're so big relative to other firms like Benchmark and USV, who their competition is, spreadsheet VCs versus people first VCs, software as a creative art form, their AI strategy, the next phase of crypto, how they think about LPs, wartime VCs versus peacetime VCs, and more. If you like what you hear, do subscribe and leave us a review. Otherwise, let's get into my conversation with Ben Horowitz. Ben, thank you for being the first inaugural guest on this podcast. Yeah, no, happy to be here. Thank you. Ben, we we're just talking off, off, off camera. There's some firms that are great for 10 years and then struggle. There's some firms that are great for 30 years, de- multi-decades. What separates the firms who could do that and, and what enables them to, to be great? Yeah, I, I think it's a combination of um, kind of the the lasting parts, like the culture, and then the parts that change, like the leadership. And uh, so I think that, you know, if you just have a couple of smart investors, um, but no culture to speak of, uh, then you're probably not going to do a great generational handoff. And, you know, that's probably 10 years uh, is a kind of 10 years is a pretty good run for investors, you know, like maybe you stretch that out. Uh, then, you know, if you can transition it, like, you know, Sequoia transitioned it from Don Valentine to, you know, uh, Mike Moritz and uh, Doug Leone and uh, Jim Getz, and that worked. You, you know that transition worked well, so they were able to kind of take the original culture and build on it 
and uh, kind of grow it, you know, 20 years for the original guys, 20 years for the successors and that kind of thing. So um, that goes pretty well. Uh, you guys are no spring chickens, almost 15 years. Yeah. How do you think about it for, for your firm? Yeah. So we're a little different in that we are organized in such a way where uh, it's not really like Mark and I can have like very significant contributions without picking the investments um, because, you know, we have, I would just say more scale and more job functions uh, at Andreessen Horowitz because we're kind of a product first and then a team of investors second, whereas every other firm I think is the opposite. Product meaning uh, the product to entrepreneurs. So like what are we offering is where we start. Um, and then the team of investors um, is kind of goes with that as opposed to we're a team of investors and then like we'll uh, figure out what our product is as we go. Um, so it's a very kind of different orientation. I've always thought of Y Combinator as another example of a product firm in the sense that you could replace a lot of the investors and they have over time and yet it still seems to work to some degree. I think that's right. Like I think they're probably, you know, the closest analog to us kind of spiritually. Yeah. So they're spiritually close to you, but they're much earlier and they dominate kind of like a uh, company creation. Whereas mm -hmm. you, yeah. you know, you yeah. do a lot of seed of course too, but you play at all, all stages. Mm -hmm. Have you thought about going after that space? Like pretty hardcore. How have you thought about where you situate in the ecosystem? Yeah. You know, it's funny cause, uh, we, Paul and, and us started, you know, around the same time he started a little earlier. Um, and, you know, we talked to him quite a bit during that phase when he was running Y Combinator out of his house with Jessica. Um, and, you, you know, I have to say, we, we never really thought about kind of being Y Combinator. And I think, like, a lot of it has to do, you know, my philosophy of business is you have to start with, okay, what can you contribute that's going to be important in the world that nobody can do better than you? And, you know, for us, a big thing that we had done is we had scaled companies, built them to very large size. That wasn't really kind of Paul's experience, um, but he had thought super deeply about like the very initial yeah. kind of part of it. Um, so I think that was the right thing for him to do, and we did the right thing for us to do. And I think the world was better with us doing our thing and him doing his thing, but like he's got a great business. Totally. Yeah. And so you're, you're a product. You're not or like he and his success. Yes. <laughs> totally. The um, most venture firms are a collection of investors. Some of you're a collection of venture firms in some ways mm -hmm. where you have yeah. these distinct, you know, uh, American dynamism and bio and crypto and yeah. uh, games and these different practices. Should other firms think, are, are you guys ahead of a curve and other people, other firms will follow you or talk about the evolution to that structure and why that made so much sense. Yeah, so it's interesting. So when we started the firm, uh, there's a lot of conventional wisdom in venture capital, like there are only 15 deals a year that are ever going to make it to $100 million. You know, it's a cottage industry, you know, done by like, you can only learn it through apprenticeship and all the, the you know, a lot of concepts, which I think were probably correct at the time. But the the thing that we believed then, and Mark kind of encapsulated in a piece he wrote in 2011 called Software is Eating the World was the software industry was going to grow a hundredfold. Um, and so 15 companies are going to be 150 companies and like things were going to change. And so in order to kind of be the preeminent venture capital firm, 
you were going to have to be a lot bigger. Uh, so we, we kind of saw that from the outset. And so we set ourselves up um, to be able to kind of organize, reorganize, evolve. And if you look at the firm now, what it is is it's, right, it's a collection of the original Andreessen Horowitz where every market um, has a platform that's appropriate to that market and an investing team that is focused on that market. And I think that that's the future of venture capital. Like when we think about who's really an interesting competitor, it's the pure crypto firm, the pure games firm, the hmm. pure AI firm, more than the generalist firm that's trying to cover all of that with the old structure. I think that's gonna be harder for them. Speaking of the future of venture, will venture firms consider going public or should they consider like a, a YC or like you guys or firms that achieve such level of scale? Yeah, so there's a real interesting alignment problem uh, with going public if you're a venture capital firm and it's as follows. So if you look at Apollo or you know Blackstone or any of these guys, private equity companies that have gone public, um, the public markets value them on their fee stream much more than on their investment returns. Yeah. Um, I think that's a safer, in, you know, kind of alignment between the investors and the firms in private equity than it is in venture capital. I think in venture capital that can get super dangerous because the even at 100x what it used to be, the entire venture capital market is not that big. Uh, and is, you know, like the, the amount of capital versus the amount of great ideas, like we already have more capital than great ideas. And as we saw, I think, with both SoftBank and Tiger Global, if you try to change um, that demand supply imbalance, you just end up creating a mess. Uh, and so if you were public, you'd have a strong incentive right. to create a mess. Well, so they went big and created a mess, but you, you guys went as big in some ways, right? Your, your volume was, was very high. Your you know uh, funds raised is very high. You went big in a much better way. Is, is the, would you dispute well, We didn't go $100 billion. But, <laughs> and then I think Tiger was raising $12 billion a year. Uh, so they, they were bigger than us, just technically. So yeah, look, we've scaled to basically size our funds to the market opportunities. So the way we look at it is like, in a two to three year time frame, how many great deals will we see in a category um, and then try to size the fund to basically cover that time period is, is kind of roughly how we do it. And that's certainly increased uh, fund sizes, both fund sizes and the number of uh, funds over the years. Um, but it's still really contained compared to what you do if you were just scaling assets. Um, like, so we, I think it's still like way smaller than like what Apollo or Vista or somebody would do, do in that kind of business. Um, so yeah, so I think that misalignment is pretty tricky for venture capital to overcome. Like I haven't figured out a way where you would overcome that yet. Right. So a firm like uh, a firm that stayed diligent, like a USV or diligent on fund size, um, you know, a, a benchmark or kind of stays at 500 or 250 respectively. Yeah. Um, th they believe that they can get better multiples on on that, you know, sm much more, smaller fund size. W what do you believe that they don't believe that in terms of justify wh why it goes so much bigger? Yeah, so I think the market's just gotten bigger. So the, I think the way to think about it is if you believe the market was fixed at 15 companies, then that's the exact right strategy. Right. 
And, you know, we don't believe that. And I think that, you know, I, I'm not allowed to talk about our fund returns because we're an RIA. But, you know, if you look at our funds, um, I think our larger funds uh, have at times like way outperformed our smaller funds. Um, and that's just kind of a function of, look, if there were 15 companies and now there's 150, then if you had a $400 million right. fund, then maybe you need a $4 billion fund um, and to do the same deals. Uh, to, or to win at, if you win the same percentage of them. Yeah. Uh, and, um, you know, like that's just a simple math. And I think that there, look, there are different beliefs. I think Benchmark believes what right. they believe. We believe what we believe. Um, and again, look, our mission isn't to, isn't necessarily fun turns, right? Our, we have a, a mission to kind of help the best entrepreneurs in the world build the best companies that they right. can. And so, you, you know, we generally come at like the whole structure of what we do from that perspective. I think also, like, I could we could all get much higher salaries if we didn't organize the firm the way we did. Uh, but you know, like, our mission isn't to maximize the number of money per partner. Our mission is to kind of uh, kind of be the resource for building right. great technology companies. So it's just like a different point of view. And so, how do you recruit such amazing partners? If at other firms, because they don't have these resources, maybe they can get higher salaries or, um, you know, there's certain perks of being at one of, one of those firms. How do you think about recruiting the best talent? Andrewson? Yeah, well, I think that, um, you know, people here, it's actually helpful that we kind of pay lower salaries to me because we get people who are on mission. You're uh, and, you know, like there's a lot that goes into that. Um, you know, like there's a, for example, there's this kind of thing in venture capital that a lot of venture capitalists will say, well, spend all your time with your winners. Um, like we don't believe in that at yeah. all. Now, like if you look at a spreadsheet, that's exact right thing, right? Like because the, the whatever three winners are going to yeah. produce all the returns. Um, but the way we look at it is, you know, several, one, <laughs> we're not so confident that we know who the winners are for a long time. Yeah. Um, the other thing is that you know, we kind of have the philosophy is, look, we knew the job was dangerous when we took it. If we're going to, if you're going to take us as your partner, we're going to be there till the bitter end. And yeah. like, that's, you know, having been <laughs> very close to the bitter end myself um, from time to time, like you really do need kind of support or at least somebody to talk to when you're in that situation. And because our, you know, just from a competitive standpoint, our whole idea is that we sell on reputation. Yep. Um, that's fundamentally important to our competitive advantage is to have the best reputation. So all those things kind of cause us to behave differently. And if you're not into that, if you're into the spreadsheet view of venture capital, then like yeah. you would hate that idea. Totally. Uh, so, so it actually works for us in that sense. And, and because you've spent the last you know decade plus building this brand reputation, there's lots of other things that you could do. Um, you can get into things beyond venture. Right. Um, different firm, you know, some firms get into um, sort of more public investing, get into yeah. wealth management. They get into other products that serve, you know, kind of adjacent um, customers or serve their customers in adjacent ways. How do you think about um, what makes sense to get into versus what doesn't make sense to get into, given that your brand enables these opportunities? Yeah. So our the, the way to think about like what we'll, we've done so far and what we'll do in the future is the customer is the founder for us. So we start with the founder and the, you know, the initial promise is, you know, we're going to help you raise money. We're going to help you develop into a CEO. We're going to build you a network that's as good as Bob Iger's. We're going to 
like help you train you into the job um and we're going to support you in every way that we can you know through our financial network to help you kind of build this company um and you know in our view we'd like to extend that through the founder's entire life from the time they found the company to the time they become a philanthropist um and so anything in that realm (laughs) we feel like is, you know, kind of things that we ought to at least consider doing um, and, you know, which ones we do and which order we'll see, you know, depending on, you know, where the gaps in the market are and what makes sense for us. One thing we've talked about off camera is that one thing that enables you to take such big swings or make these changes when the market changes is your unique approach to um, sort of governance or yeah. control. When you talk about that relative to other venture firms. Yeah, it's interesting. It's a, it's kind of an, a concept that we got from a couple of people. One was Herb Allen, who, who you know, I think, and yep. then the other was Mark's father-in-law. Hey, we'll continue our interview in a moment after a word from our sponsors. Over 100 startups launched today. Do you know who they are? If you're not seeing interesting startups, none of your downstream processes matter. How you source deals at the earliest stages could be your most consequential investment. Harmonic is the most complete startup database, finding new companies as soon as they incorporate and tracking them through IPO. You can create a search tailored to your investment thesis. In one search, filter over company data, including venture stage, industry, and geography, founders and operators backgrounds, and traction metrics like headcount changes, social media audience, and web traffic growth. Importantly, Harmonic instantly surfaces warm connections to help you connect with founders. The results are delivered on autopilot, wherever you most need them over Slack, email, or via API, directly into your CRM, integrating seamlessly into your software stack. Learn why Craft, Bedrock, NEA, and hundreds more. Trust Harmonic's data by visiting harmonic.ai or use the link in the description. Make sure you mention our podcast, Turpentine VC, during your demo. And they both kind of gave us the same idea, which, so in, traditionally in venture capital, I think it looks a little like a law firm or, a, you know, kind of a lot of these partnership structures where you have shared economics and shared control. And like from a partner standpoint, there's a lot, you know, that makes a lot of sense in a lot of ways. We have a different structure where we're shared economics, but we've kind of centralized control. Um, and that enables us by not having shared control we can change the structure of the of the firm very easily. And if you want to grow, <laughs> yeah. like so, you know, if you want to go, you know, in an integrated way, like you could have, though that's the Chinese subsidiary or whatever, and that's a whole other entity, and we talk to them, you know, once every six months. Or we, that's, that's not what I'm talking about. But if you want to grow in an integrated way with a kind of single culture, single offering, um, then you have to be able to change the organizational structure you know, as you get bigger. Um, so like the structure that you had at 50 people, it's just not going to work at 500. And that's for any organization. Um, but in order to do that, somebody's got to be able to make that decision with no politicking, no arguing, no, you know, like there'll be tears because uh, whoever loses t- power is going to like be upset about it. But you have to be able to make those tough decisions to get to the structure that you need to be maximally effective. And that's just really hard to do, I think. I don't know how you would do it with shared control. Let's get back to the the future of venture. Let's say we're having this conversation 10 years from now or 15 years from now. Um, does venture kind of look, is it, does the trends that are happening now continue to happen where there's just this bifurcation? You know, 
multi-stage firms become even more multi-asset firms that just get bigger and bigger and bigger and this sort of uh, you know solo gp or small specialists on, on you know kind of this barbell or do new models come into play like venture studios really take off or do emerging technology like web3 or ai really change the change how venture works or say more about the the future of venture <laughs> yeah no like I, uh, all possibilities i mean look i think the kind of classical venture firm um, that is just like a collection of smart you know, investors, like I think that's probably run its course. Mm -hmm. So I think you have to be like <clears throat> a top end, like serious brand that can marshal resources and money and um, considered smart money and people want to follow. Um, you know, I put us in that category, Sequoia. Um, you know, there's that class of thing. And then there's people who are very specialized in a very kind of specific part of the market and know that network and have really great specific expertise and they'd probably be, you know, more early stage, I would think. Um, and those two things seem pretty solid, at least for the next five, 10 years. Everything else a little more questionable. I think, you know, with the studio model, the, 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 to me, the big problem with that historically, um, and I, you know, I think Bill Gross was probably the probably the greatest practitioner of that historically, um, is that it's not idea; it's an idea maze. Yeah. <laughs> and so, uh, and it's very hard to run through the idea maze if it's not your idea. And so, like that's a, I, I think that tends to be problematic. That's kind of, it's a little bit of a design for the head of the studio's lifestyle and kind of capabilities as opposed to what's going to make a great company. And so I don't know that that's ever going to work. And I thought Paul's genius was the ideas weren't his. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that was the difference between an incubator and an accelerator. Uh, and that, I think, you know, just proved to be the right model. And the reason it's the right model is because whoever's building the company, it better be their idea. Yeah. When you identify an emerging trend, whether it's Web3, whether it's AI, whether it's companies that get big and it's really big, really fast in a certain, you know, during the pandemic, let's say. And some people are more uh, prudent about it. Some people are more bullish. And I uh -huh. put you guys more in the, the bullish camp, smart bullish, but bullish. And is the logic there that, hey, not everything's going to work out, but the things that work just work so much that it just really makes sense to be extremely bullish? Or I guess when you reflect on the past, you know, few years and things that you went really hard on if you were to do versions of again going forward in the future now this ai wave of course how do you think about riding trends and how hard to to ride them if you look at um the history of technology almost everything eventually worked yeah. right all the stuff go back to 1999 2001 all the dot bombs yeah oh, that's the dumbest ha 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 pets.com how stupid <laughs> You know, like all that stuff, you know, and then diapers.com sells for $800 you know, million dollars later. Uh, it was just a little ahead of its time. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think the beauty of venture capital is you can make the bet. And if you're too early, you can make the bet again. So if the clean energy craze happened again, you know, if you guys were around during that time, do you think you would have bet big there and just said, hey, we're 10 uh, years earlier? Well, well, that one is a little different in that that was like a politically motivated market, right. which is a 
different kind of a thing. I mean, I think, so we're, we're big believers in software. And if yeah. there's like a massive software breakthrough that has new applications or new models or, or, or these kinds of things, then we'd certainly be all on, on that. Anything like AI or, or crypto or, or, you know, or like, you know, what's going on in games, like we'd bet that every time. Um, I think climate uh, it was a little different. It wasn't software, it was material sciences, yeah. which uh, has a different uh, market dynamic. Um, so it's kind of like, uh, like there eventually became a small number of auto companies. Right. Um, there never eventually became a small number of software companies, despite right. what Larry Ellison and all those guys said, that there were only going to be three software <laughs> companies and all that thing. Because it's kind of like, it'd be like there's only going to be three novelists. Yeah. It's a creative art form. It's got a very big design space. And so, um, you know, we think there, you know, if there is like a big change in how you can write software, which AI is probably the biggest change we've ever had, um, that's going to, yes, that's going to produce things. And we bet that all day, yeah. all the time, every day. And I think like that's also the kind of value of being able to evolve the firm is, um, look, people who knew smartphone network effects may not be the ones who really get AI, may not yeah. be the ones who really get crypto, et cetera. I, I know Mark is spending a bunch of time in AI right now. Yeah. Um, talk about the AI strategy at, at, or how you're approaching AI in terms of uh, there's both how you think about it from an investing perspective, but also does it change things at the firm more, more broadly? Yeah, well, like it, it does change things at the firm broadly. You know, from an investing perspective, it's kind of like, oh my God, we have non-deterministic computing. <laughs> like, holy cow. Uh, you know, like it's it's a whole, every problem we couldn't solve with yeah. deterministic computing is now for grabs. Yeah. And that's uh, like, you, you know, we've never seen anything like that. So from a, from a firm perspective, I think, you know, we end up needing, okay, different expertise. Um, we need uh, kind of access to different networks. We need um, kind of different kind of help for entrepreneurs. Like it's amazing. So many of the AI entrepreneurs are actually, they're not even engineers, they're like researchers. Yeah. <laughs> um, so this is a totally different type of cat to be starting a company. Uh, and you know what do they need to succeed and, and that kind of thing so it's a it's a very big tidal wave kind of running through the firm and running through the industry but we're we couldn't be more excited about it i mean the other thing is like we're in this phase where it's such a profound change that anything you do like will work at least for a while yeah <laughs> and so it's kind of hard to pass on any deal in, in that way so it's, it's exciting well and that was true also of, of, of web3 for a moment when you when you yeah. uh, when you think about Web3, do you think, hey, it's just in a momentary lull, partly you know, sponsored by markets and developer activities higher than ever? Or I've been struck just by how far ahead AI is uh, of, of Web3 just on terms of use cases and products. And yet I, I've been ignoring AI up until the last year or so, and I was spending yeah. more time on Web3. Like, what did I, you know, was the financialization distraction or I guess re reflect on that a little bit or what's your perspective on that? Yeah, so there's, there's a few things. So one is like um, AI happened overnight. Like this AI yeah. model started in 1943, <laughs> so it was a long time coming, and, yeah, but and it was finally out of the like working really well. I think with uh, crypto, it started like in earnest in 2008. Um, like that was the 1943 was moment, yep. so it's a lot younger than AI. And like I think, in fact, so and there have been um, 
there have been kind of a, a variety of use cases. Some of them have been, so there's like this, what we call Web3 and, you know, a new way, way to build networks that's fair and, and not like doesn't tend towards these like very dangerous monopolies that control all information and all these kinds of things. Um, but there's also kind of like a, because you can create uh, money, there's a casino aspect, um, which, you know, needs regulation. Uh, and we've been kind of working with the U.S. government to try and get the correct regulation. And so, you know, in its current state, I would say there's two things. One is we need uh, performance to improve a lot, you know, and kind of gas fees to lower and performance to improve so usability can improve and that kind of thing. And that we're really on the verge of. I mean, like, I, I think we're going to see 100x improvement of the kind of base infrastructure in the next turn in the next year. Um, so that's awesome. Uh, the other thing, though, is the kind of regulatory regime and, like, what's possible and can we get clarity and so forth. And we're working on that both kind of domestically and internationally. Um, but those are kind of things that in order to get very broad adoption, that's going to have to overcome. Like AI is already getting broad adoption because like it works. Now the regulators are <laughs> now moving in and, uh, you know, very ironically, oddly, bizarrely talking about uh, trying to ban open source, which is probably the safest thing that could, possibly happen right. in AI because, um, you know, the last thing, if AI is this all-powerful thing, uh, then the last thing you want is it in the hands of one person right. <laughs> or one company, like that would be horrible yeah. and dangerous. Uh, whereas if it's open source, universities can work on it, we can understand it, it can be deployed. I mean, like I often remind people, like the last nuclear bomb that was launched was when only we had the nukes. <laughs> Like that, that's a dangerous yeah. world with one person having the nukes. And now everyone uh, has yeah. nukes and or a bunch of people have nukes and we haven't had. Yeah. And we haven't had any nuclear activity. Yeah. And, and there's a very, very specific reason for that because everybody's got nukes <laughs> and yeah. nobody wants to get nuked. <laughs> and I think that AI is, a, you, you know, to the extent that AI is a super weapon, um, that will also be true there. And so if you believe that, then I think what you want is open source. And I think if you want regulatory capture or monopoly for yourself, you want to shut that yeah. down. You mentioned earlier that you consider your peers as the best kind of specialist firms and you compete with those firms. Do you also see your peers or competitors, firms, that, other multi-asset firms that are not even in venture? Like as you get bigger and bigger AUM, you know, um, are there firms that you see yourself as veering into their, their space or? Uh, no. So like, you know, it's funny because I've spent some time uh, with both kind of the folks at like uh, BlackRock and the and at Apollo, just trying to understand their structure and why they're public and these kinds of things. And I would say they are culturally, philosophically, operationally the opposite of us. So, like, they're very, very price-focused. Yeah. They're optimizers. They're, you know, efficiency experts. Um, like, we don't care about any of that. Um, what we care about is, like, is it a real breakthrough and how big can we help make it, you know, yeah. can it win the market? Like those are the things that drive us. So there, there's nothing about what they do that would make them good at what we do. And there's nothing about what we do that would make us good at what they do. So like, I think, you know, we'll never get into that realm. Yeah. And when people focus so much on returns, it also, it's important to think about just the LP product. Like my understanding of the SoftBank thesis was that this is a place that LP could plow a ton of capital and yeah. get some like consistent, you know, 
uh, return. And there's not that many places where you could just plow all that capital into into one place and get that kind of diversification. Yeah. Is, is that how you think? Like, how do you think about the LP product that you're offering? We think about LPs differently. Um, so we think about LPs, or the way we like to think about them is the same way a company would think about its VC. So hmm. um, one, uh, so we're not building a product for them. We're yeah. building a product for founders. Right. And, you know, they can invest in that product. Um, and then there's a couple of things we think about there. One is, we want to have the kind of investors that we want to be in business with for a very long time. So we choose them very carefully. And two, we want to treat them like investors. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I think, you know, sometimes uh, venture capitalists make the mistake of not doing that, um, which, you know, what does that mean? It means, well, like you shouldn't have them invest if you don't respect their opinion or an interest in what they have to say. Um, don't want to keep them up to date on what you're doing. Like, then, then you're not treating them like investors if you don't do that. And I think what we're going to find out in this kind of particular uh, interest rate change environment is that like the VCs who didn't treat their LPs like investors right. are going to be in for um, what that means in bad times. Does macro inform your your your, your firm strategy? Or no, no. Like I, th I think we got to be very careful about that. In fact, so one macro, in our view is highly unpredictable. Right. So that's the first thing. Um, and so we don't try to predict it. Yep. And then secondly, uh, we have a 10-year horizon on exits. So if we invest in a company today, we're expecting it to come out in the environment in 2033. And so in 2033, <laughs> the idea that we could predict that macroeconomic right. environment is like pretty absurd to me. Yeah. Like even to talk about it sounds weird. Hey, we'll continue our interview in a moment after a word from our sponsors. So like getting caught up in that, I think, is really dangerous. And we saw a lot of so there were a lot of hedge funds that, you know, attempted to do venture capital in 2021. Um, and I think all of them had massive reactions to the macroeconomic environment. I think that's really, really dangerous, you know, particularly for the early stage stuff that they did where they're now, you know, like, not only are they not doing the follow-ons, like they won't even return the call. <laughs> um, and so you get into that kind of situation. It's like, that's not even smart for you. Yeah. Like, you know, you, it's kind of like you're a bad person for not calling back somebody you invested in, but like, that's not even smart for you. Like, what are you yeah. doing? Like, you don't know what's going to happen in 2033. Right. Makes sense. When you started the firm, people like Michael Ovitz and others gave you advice on how to think mm -hmm. about the firm in a different way based on the market at the time. I'm curious for the next Ben Horowitz and Mark Andreessen out there who are 20 years or 30 years younger, whatever, they're just starting out, um, but want to build the next A16Z, but they're identifying, you know, thinking of the market at, looking at the market at 2023, and let's say they're coming to you guys for advice and you wanted to give them advice. How would you think about creating next A16Z you know, starting in 2023, given where the market is today. <laughs> there already is a 16Z. <laughs> That's the, yeah, the Uber yeah, for X is Uber. Now, if they wanted to create a Hollywood talent agency, um, then I would have plenty of advice yep. for them, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. You've coined the term, you know, wartime CEO, peacetime CEO. I'm curious if we could think about, um, you know, wartime VC. Because right now it's a tough time in, in markets, tough time to get a firm off the ground. You know, people are more skeptical about venture. People are skeptical about tech more broadly. It's an anti time of anti tech. <laughs> what it's like to be a wartime VC or to be techno optimist in a world that is uh, increasingly pessimistic? Yeah. So, like, I think the biggest kind of um, 
war kind of issue that we have is actually probably with uh, you know the regulatory environment and some of the ideas uh, of the kind of current administration where they they have become anti-innovation and, and look we've already seen like a pretty large percentage of the crypto uh, venture capital go overseas so yep. like the idea that the United States would forfeit the internet of property rights and money um, at such an early stage in its life. Yep. It just feels so absurd, you know, it doesn't even feel like America in that way. Um, and like the, the like literally fake things that they're blaming it on, like, oh, crypto's funding fentanyl. I read that today, I was like, what <laughs> oh the hell God. are you talking about? It's like <laughs> literally the most transparent form of uh, payment that there is in the world. Like more than Visa, more than dollars, more than anything. And like for somebody, you know, a uh, senator to come out and say some just completely something that she no, no doubt knows isn't true, uh, you know, to kind of push innovation overseas is like that's a real wartime kind of situation for us in innovation land. And I think we're seeing the same thing in AI. We certainly have, you know, struggles for a different reason in, in bio and, uh, you know, that kind of technology. But like, so i just give you the, on, on bio though, the FTC recently, you know, sued uh, to break up a deal between a bio startup and a kind of big pharma company. Like, it's pretty impossible to do drug, to fund drug development if there's no M&A market. Um, yeah. So to literally like outlaw new science for health um, <laughs> new financial technology, new uh, kind of property rights in the virtual world is like a really hard stance for us to understand. So we're, we are, you know, working with policymakers and trying to understand, okay, you know, because it's not all like, you know, bananas, like some of it is, uh, you know, certainly makes sense. Um, but to kind of shape that for like a, a future that's prosperous for America is right. like a big effort from from the firm, and we're working hard on that. Um, but that's that feels like wartime. That feels like okay. Now we have an actual threat, uh, existential threat to innovation in America. Um, you know, in terms of being a tech optimist, I, I always like to go back to a quote from Andy Grove, which I absolutely love, uh, which he said in the '90s. Um, and somebody asked him, they said. Andy, is the microprocessor good or bad? And he said, well, that's a, not even the right question. That's like asking, is steel good or bad? It is. And so it's our job to make it good. And that's you know, a lot how I feel about um, kind of all these technologies is they are going to exist. <laughs> like you cannot, you can't get rid of the wheel now. Like it's yeah. over, like it's here. Uh, you can't get rid of AI now, it's over, it's here. Like you can't outlaw math. Um, you can't like like that paper's already out there. Like you're not going to stop it. Like the whole idea that you're going to stop people from doing it is just so crazy. Um, so then the real question is like, okay, what do we have to do to make it good and positive for society and so forth? And by the way, without new technologies, like how are we going to deal with pandemics or climate change or any of the real you know issues facing the world? Like it's not even possible without technology. Like it's like we're like lockdowns didn't work. None of the policy stuff worked. You know what works? Pax Lovid. Yeah. That works. <laughs> you have COVID, you take that, like you're good. 
that works. Um, so we need technological solutions to these very, very daunting problems that we have with a you know more and more populous Earth and all these kinds of things. So, um, you know, that's how we remain optimistic. Yeah, and um, maybe gearing towards closing here. Um, so as I mentioned to you, you, you guys have been very helpful to us. You know, we're seeking to create this new kind of tech media company. It's yeah. more driven by insiders. It has more of a pro tech approach. Um, what advice for, would you have for us? Or when you look at the kind of media ecosystem, what, uh, what, what more do you want to see? Yeah, well, I, I think you're on like a really good track, which is, you know, what I want to see is, okay, I'm a young person and I want to understand where the world is going and what's happening and how I can get involved and make my contribution. What do I need to know? And I think that's, you know, like, <clears throat> how does AI work? What is this new computational model of the universe? How can I learn about it? How can I kind of push things forward? Um, which is like largely absent, <laughs> I, I would say. I mean, I think you're walking into a vacuum is the good news. Uh, but, you know, that when I was a kid, there used to be like Dr. Dobbs, yeah. you know, and uh, Wired Magazine was that way for a long time. But, you know, now it's just like these weird politically charged, you know, uh, whatever criticisms of how things are run or how things are built or what they're going to do or every negative consequence of everything. You know, the internet had so many negative consequences, totally. but like, I don't think, you know, <laughs> if we got rid of it, then like if you're in Bangladesh, like you now have no access to any of the information totally. that people in the rich world have. It's, it's done amazingly great things. Um, but like, yes, there's cybercrime. Yes, there's porn. Yes, there's yeah. a lot of things that, you know, probably are not a general positive for a society. I think people over uh, abstracted from the uh, um, Elizabeth Holmes or Theranos situation. Yeah. Identified, hey, I could make a career. There's, or th you know, finding more of these, and there's got to be more of these. Thinking yeah. that over abstraction, and then another over, you know, abstraction was around um, sort of defending democracy. To, you know, because Facebook somehow. In people's minds contributed to Trump. Yeah, well, uh, the funny thing was, like, if you go back to 2008, all the stories on how Obama got elected right. were Facebook. <laughs> like, he, yes. he mastered Facebook. He got elected on Facebook. Facebook's the greatest thing. It's making the world more democratic. Arab Spring. Wow, this is so awesome. And then Trump gets elected, and it's like, this is a threat to democracy. <laughs> we're all screwed. <laughs> <laughs> Got to shut down the social network. So, you know, like yeah. it's it's interesting, you know, when things get political, they get very weird very fast, and, I think. And what's funny now, and we'll hear too close, is uh, AI is, it's now coming from within the house in terms of some of the people who are most active yeah. are like, are within tech in terms of, and maybe it's regulatory capture, or maybe it's something I think else. it's regulatory <laughs> capture. I mean, <laughs> Some I, people are true believers. It's the Google guy or like some people. Really are, early. Yeah, Look, I there are people who are really genuinely worried about how powerful the technology is. And I think, like, those are good worries. Yep. But the idea that um, the way you deal with a powerful technology is you put it in the hands of a few <laughs> is the most craziest idea. Well, like, look, power in the hands of the few has never turned out well. Right. right? Like, with the best intentions. Right? People love Karl Marx's intentions. <laughs> but Stalin, yeah. Pol Pot. <laughs> yeah. You know, Mao, like everybody died. Yeah. That's what happened. Everybody died. And like all those guys didn't start out to be like singularly, right. uniquely evil people, but they had too much power because yeah. you take all the power of the private sector and put it in the hands of a few guys in the government. It doesn't matter what the political philosophy is. That's bad. Yep. And similarly, if you take all the power of the industry and you put it with two companies 
that's going to be bad. I can yeah. guarantee you that. Like, I don't know what else is going to be bad, but I know that's bad. Yeah. I think it's a great place to, to wrap on the <laughs> uplifting note of power to the people uh, and uh, decentralizing power. Ben, thanks yeah. so much for coming on the podcast. This yeah, evening. no, great, Eric. This is good. And, and, and great luck and the best of luck. We're all excited about, um, about what you're doing and, and its impact on the world. Thank you. Hey, everyone. Eric here. At Turpentine, we're building the first media outlet for tech people by tech people. We're the network behind the show you're listening to right now. We have a slate of hit shows across a range of topics and industries, from our AI and investing cluster of podcasts, to shows that drive the conversation in tech with the most interesting thinkers, founders, investors, and influencers, like Econ 102 with Noah Smith. We're launching new shows every week, and we're looking for industry-leading sponsors. If you think that might be you and your company, email me at erikaturpentine.co. That's E-R-I-K at turpentine.co, and let's partner together. Turpentine VC is a podcast from Turpentine, the network behind Moment of Zen and Econ 102. If you liked the episode, please leave a review in the Apple Store or rate us on Spotify.